0: Welcome to Indie Matters, the show from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis, down in Las Vegas.
1: On this episode of Indie Matters, I sit down with veteran reporter Howard Stutz, who has covered the gaming industry in Nevada for decades, for part one of three of a series we're calling Flashback. In this first part, we start in the 1930s, when gaming first was legalized in the state.
0: After that, we have more from our conversation last week with editor John Ralston on the 2021 legislative session.
1: At the end of the show, I chat with reporter Megan Messerly about vaccines, the rollout in the rurals, vaccination numbers, the statewide reopening, and more. All right, and so I am here with our, our brand new reporter, Howard Stutz. You cover gaming and the business end of, of, of what's going on in, in Las Vegas. Howard, welcome to the team first off. I want to, I want to say
2: hello. Well, thank you for having me on the pot, on the Indie Matters podcast. Uh, my first month here in the with the Indie. I'm really excited.
1: And, and, and we, we thought a good way to introduce you and also just uh, something that I've wanted to do for a long time. History is really important in Nevada. I mean, it's important in every state. And it's important because it gives context to how things are developing moving forward. So we're going to do this three-part series. The first one is going to be like the origins of gaming in Nevada. And as we move through it, we're going to get to modern day and and looking forward and to see where we're going to go. And it's important to have this context, I think, because, again, gaming is such an important part of the state. It's the the main economic driver, or was the main economic driver for a long time. It's shifted a lot. There's been lots of changes, both in power dynamics and how the state approaches dealing with gaming. So let's start with the history of gaming in Nevada, how it got started in the early days. How did gaming come to Nevada originally?
2: Well, it was here when Nevada was a territory, but it was in all the saloons. There are really four key years that I like to focus on. It's 1931 was when the first bill in the Nevada legislature was introduced to legalize gaming in Nevada. And so it was legalized. It went through... Finally, in 1959, Governor Grant Sawyer introduced the Gaming Regulatory Act. And it was basically when you created what we have now, the modern uh, system of gaming regulation that's been copied in other states, frankly. It's a two-tiered system where you have a gaming control board that makes recommendations, licenses, makes all these recommendations to the Nevada Gaming Commission, which makes the final ruling. The control board is a full-time agency whereas the Gaming Commission, there are five part-time commissioners. So that was took place in 1959. At the same time, they also created the basis for the Black Book, the the ban people from, from entering the Nevada Casino if they had a horrible reputation. But we have to jump forward to 1972 before the Black Book was finally really thought out and instituted. But the other key date, another key date was 1967. The legislature approved allowing corporations to own casino companies, and it wasn't no longer just the single casino owner. It was a corporation could be publicly traded, but we didn't see a publicly traded company until 1972 when um, Harrah's went public. They became the first gaming company to go public back in 1972. But you saw corporations come in. Uh, Hilton Hotels, for example, came in and bought what was then the International, the Las Vegas Hilton. So you saw this type of movement for on corporations getting involved in gaming, and then. In Las Vegas, probably one of the most key dates was 1989. In the year year 1989, was when the Mirage opened. That was the first all new, from the ground up, mega resort on the Strip in more than in probably about 15 years. When Steve Wynn built it, it was the most expensive a hotel casino in in Nevada at the time 565 million which i think now that's probably what a couple of rooms cost in some in some of these strip resorts but that's that, that's kicked off the massive building boom that we saw in the Las Vegas strip that began in the 1990s and and continued up really into until 2010 Post recession, when the Casa Palta opened, so that, that those are really the key events, key moments, key years that happened with Nevada gaming. Rather than get in all the, the the history, but you had people like Howard Hughes back in the '60s buying up multiple hotels on the Strip. He's finally, I think, I covered that in, 19, in the late '80s when the front one of the last hotels that Hughes owned was sold finally to a, another company. So it's a been a it's been a long road for this state.
1: So I mean, 1931 was when it when it started here. Why did Nevada decide to bring gaming?
2: Gaming was going on, but it was after the Great Depression. You have to remember. So Phil Tobin was the assemblyman. He introduced the assembly assembly bill 98, which allowed for wide open gambling. It was a way maybe to get some taxes into the state at the time. They just decided that it was the timing seemed to be right to do it. It was going on, never regulated. So now they went ahead and made it made it legal, and they actually put down. Oh, it, it kept the number the number of games that you could have. What games were legal? Small card game. They allowed card games, so they were no longer illegal in the back rooms. So that's really why one of the the impetus so is like everything that we see today with the modern gaming industry around the U.S. Why do they legalize gaming taxes for the you know they need the taxes? Why do you think sports betting's been legalized? That's one to get rid of the illegal market, and two get the tax and regulate it and that's what they that's what that's what we see but it's foremost within gaming expansion around the country these days.
1: Yeah, it's kind of interesting. I actually never thought about it like that. I mean, one of the arguments for legalizing like drugs, right, is the same thing. It, it's happening anyway. Why not at least regulate it and make sure that we're getting tax dollars.
2: Prepared? Yeah, marijuana marijuana is the prime example of that, Joey. I mean, we look at look at the taxes that are coming in from legal marijuana sales. So, yeah it is that that really was the key element for bringing gaming into into the legal era in 1931 yeah. it took a while though to really get the regulations to and the regulations today are still being evaluated and changed they they went through former chairman AG Burnett went through a whole Back in the you know last decade, went through a whole set of changes to regulations, and it's been followed by other gaming control board chairmen have moved forward with this type of regulation changes. It's always going to be an evolving um, industry, I think.
1: So, when did Vegas, Las Vegas, we've got Reno, and I th- Reno was, was more established earlier on in Nevada's history. But Las Vegas really came into its own later on. And especially now, like you think of Las Vegas, like when you think of Nevada, people think of Las Vegas. That's a lot lot of times what they think of. As someone from Reno, that hurts my heart a little bit, but regardless like the strip is is this icon. I think another thing that people think about when they think of the history of Las Vegas is the mob. When did Las Vegas come into its own as this as this metropolitan area as this place for people to go to gamble and was the mob involved in that early part or when did the mob become part of that?
2: Mob was probably part of it in the 50s with the building of the Flamingo and Bugsy Bugsy Siegel. See the movie Bugsy, there's your history right there. Honestly, the best History movie on Las Vegas is the movie Casino, because uh, that talked about, discussed how the mob in the 60s and mainly the 70s. But it was the mob was really prevalent in the 60s and the 70s with, with casino properties. They were the reason, when I first moved here in you know, the early 1980s, and I would, you hear people talking, oh, the town was so much better when the boys ran it. I mean, it's just, you hear that, you hear that story. But it, gaming really started to change in the 70s. Part of it was from Reno because of Bill Hera. I think when Harris took Harris public in the, 19, the 1970s, that really was a, a turning point for the industry. And sad to say, you mentioned Reno earlier. Harris-Reno is now closed and it's being remodeled into, I think they're calling it Reno City Center. There will be gambling at it. There will be gaming. They've, they kept a gaming license there and it's going to be just a small, probably more of a tavern type thing. Not, not, not won't be table games or any big casino. But getting back to that, I think really as corporations came in, that got the organized crime elements out of Nevada, but you you know there's history here with that. I mean we, you know, we have a mob museum in Las Ve- in downtown Las Vegas, they, they, so we still have pay homage to the mob in so many ways. The movie Casino, like I said, was just a one of the best history stories because it told the story about the mob here. I mean, they changed the names for the movie, but, in the, but when, you, when you read the the book casino. It's They use all the real names of Frank Lefty Rosenthal and Tony Spolatro. Our colleague John L. Smith is a historian on the mob in Las Vegas, more of the modern mob, as the mob started to filter out. And I think he's a great resource for that type of history. Funny story, years ago, I took us, in between many of the jobs I had, I was doing communications, public relations, and I was helping the um, ABC network Affiliate in Los Angeles, KBC in Los Angeles, was in Las Vegas doing a Las Vegas Families series. I, I field produced it for them, and I took the um, reporter and the cameraman to lunch at a place called Chicago Joe's, which is in downtown Vegas, an Italian restaurant. So it was a late lunch, and I looked over and I said, Hey, you guys, you want to see a real live mobster? And they were like, they got all excited, and I pointed out Fat Herbie blitzstein who was one of Tony Spolatro's henchman was having lunch with his attorney, John Mobbett, over there at, 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 at Chicago Joe. So they got all excited. They found to see a real live mobster, retired mobster, who eventually a few years ago was killed in a hit in his, in his condo. So there's there, there's our little connection with Vegas history and the mob.
1: It, it never ceases to amaze me. I, I know our editor, John Ralston, always says, all roads lead back to Vegas in one way or another. But
2: It is. You know, it, it does. I mean, you think of big stories, and they lead back here somehow. I mean, in some ways, the bad stories too, which is not, which is really too bad, which is sad for our community. But yeah, that's true. That some of the big stories all lead back here. Well, the last of, of the part one here
1: is kind of the height of Vegas. You know, we, we've got the mobs, and, and I know that, that was this big, this big height. But then once that moved out, and we have the corporations come in. When did Vegas? and I guess gaming in general in Nevada hit its peak.
2: 2007 was the biggest year for gaming revenues over 12 billion dollars. That was the record year, 12.8 billion. That was that 12.8 billion was the was the record year for gaming in Nevada. That that was probably if you talk about just pure gaming numbers alone, that's the apex. That was the high point. It was really starting to pick up. As I said after after the Mirage Open, and then it was followed by Excalibur and Luxor. Luxor opened a few years later. But that's that's really 1989. That's where it started. And then they have started that building boom through that decade of the 90s. The MGM Grand, the second version of the MGM Grand. The first MGM Grand is now Bally's Las Vegas. It was the MGM Grand Las Vegas when it caught fire in 1980. Second MGM Grand Las Vegas opened in 1993. You had Luxor. By, by 1998, 1999, you had Mandalay Bay. The Venetian. So you saw this huge building boom going on into up until the mid 2000s the win Las Vegas, when, when Steve Wynn came back and built the win. It just kept on, we kept on seeing more and more mega resorts. There was a turn towards convention business that we saw on a much larger scale than Las Vegas ever was before. But it also, with this, the bigger resorts came the more entertainment, the more non-gaming attractions, and then about at that point, somewhere in that within that time frame, it switched where gaming revenues were not the driver for Las Vegas. It was the non-gaming revenues. But pre pandemic, gaming revenues on the strip were about 35% of the overall revenues for the casinos. Sixty five percent came from the hotel rooms, the restaurants, the entertainment, the retail. That's where the real big change is. That has really been the change over the years. People don't come here per se to gamble. You can do that in many major cities and states in the U.S. They come here for the Las Vegas, for the experience that is Las Vegas. And that's that's what's really kept Las Vegas far and above board. The destination for the gaming industry is still the gaming capital, despite gaming in 45 states, casino gaming in 45 states. Vegas still remains the, the, the gaming capital of the world. And that's what the allure is. It's just everything about Vegas. Why do people why people come here? Why how many movies have been made about Las Vegas? You know, the hangover. <laughs> you know, it's that type of that, that type of environment. That's what really draws people here.
1: Well, I think that's a good place to wrap the first of three parts, and so we'll we'll wrap there, but we'll come back uh, next week for, for more about kind of where gaming shifted, and, and like you mentioned already, gaming is now in a lot of states, not just Nevada, so kind of how that has impacted the state. Howard, thanks for being on the first part. Thank you for having me. Now we have the second half of a discussion I had with editor John Ralston on the 2021 legislative session. If you'd like to hear the first part of our discussion, you can find it on last week's episode.
3: This is a session that is very different from uh, any other in Nevada history in the sense that for most of the session, the legislative building was closed. Closed to lobbyists, closed, closed to the public, and so there was uh, even more secrecy. I think than is usually uh, coming in at a legislative session, which uh, some people may not know. The legislature is not bound by the open meeting law, so there's obviously some secrecy, and so I think that increased the skepticism about what was going on. Yeah.
1: You mentioned the open meeting law. I want to talk about that for a second, just for people that don't know what it is, because I think it is an interesting uh, dynamic that, that we have in Nevada. But what is the open meeting law and why don't they follow it?
3: Well, most public bodies, uh, nearly all public bodies, whether they're a city council or a county commission or, or, or just like the Regional Transportation Commission, have to follow uh, this law that is in statute that requires them uh, to give a certain amount of notice. I think it's still 72 hours, although I haven't looked uh, in, in a while, in which they say what their business is going to be at the next meeting. The legislature, which of course is responsible for passing state laws, long ago passed the state law that said that they are exempt from the open meeting law. The rationale for that essentially is is that we don't have time for that towards the end. We need to suspend the rules. We need to do things very quickly. But it does, again, contribute to, to the perception that things happen in back rooms in the dark of night, et cetera, that we've all heard many times.
1: So the, these these citizen legislators, these people, they're they're not full time politicians. I was kind of curious. We had a, a decently sized freshman class come in this year. Who are some standouts? Who are some people that really stood out to you uh, that are new that you're, you you expect to see some more things from them in the future?
3: That's a better question for uh, Riley and Michelle and Tabitha, who are up there. They 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 saw them uh, up close, and I'm not I'm not sure who is going to end up getting good reviews when 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 all of. Is said and done, but there was a very progressive freshman class, uh, and and in in the assembly, and and I think Jason Frierson, who is a progressive, by the way, but 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 had to also has to deal with in the, in the politics of reality as a leader, was very frustrated by most of, uh, of of those freshmen. It's easy to come up there and think you know it all in your first se- session, and then and then you lead, learn some lessons. There was. Uh, there was a new senator by by the name of Fabian Donate who got who got appointed, who I think is even younger than you, Joey, and that's and that's saying something. <laughs> um, and he and he got and he got pretty good reviews from 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 what I understand for not doing what some freshmen do and 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 just strutting around. He 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 kept his mouth shut. He learned. He stayed in what his subject matter expertise is in, which is healthcare. But uh, I think it's a little bit too early for that too.
1: Well, what's what's not too early, I think, is is looking back on some of the people that are leaving. We're gonna have a lot of people leaving, a lot of big names, a lot of forces of nature that are that are are, are they're either terming out or they're not gonna run again, or for whatever reason they're not gonna be in the in the in the legislature in the next session. What are some of those names that are going to really be missed, really be you're going to be felt?
3: Well, uh, there's really just one and then the rest. Uh, and the one is Maggie Carlton, who was the chairwoman of the Assembly Ways and Means uh, Committee, and did something very unusual. In fact, it may be unprecedented in, in Nevada politics, uh, who was a state senator then termed out as a state senator and went to the lower house and became an assemblywoman. And then it turned out uh, this time. Maggie Carlton is an incredible only in Nevada Story in in the sense that she was essentially the first culinary worker ever to be recruited to run. And she knew nothing about nothing when she got there 24 years ago or or so. And she has developed into an expert on the budget, an expert on the politics of the legislature, and a person who developed in lobbyists and other legislators. I think the one quality that you need to have to be successful as a legislator, and that is the quality of engendering fear. People fear Maggie Carlton. They don't want to be on the wrong side of Maggie Carlton. And Maggie Carlton is not a nasty person. She's not a bad person. But she, when she brings the hammer down, it, it, it comes down with a, with a really hard sound. Her, She is going to be missed just because I think her story is so great. And because whether you agree with what she did or not. Uh, And and whether it was standing up for the culinary or standing up for state employees, or, or, or getting more money into education, she she was remarkably effective. And she is a regular person who became a very skilled and successful politician. You don't see
1: that that often. Yeah. I just have a couple more questions for you. One is, you tweeted this out, and uh, I always want to ask you about some of your tweets. They're always fun. But are we going to be the first in the nation <laughs> for uh, for voting now? You know, it, it, there was there was some bills passed about that. It seems like it's a little ambiguous, especially with other states and their laws. But we are going to be hopefully moving up in in the, in the order, huh?
3: Yeah, well, what you're referring to is the presidential primary used to be a caucus here and we've been an early state since 2008, third in line behind New Hampshire and, and Iowa. And we passed a law this time. They passed a law saying that we're first in the nation. We're a long way from knowing whether that's gonna happen. There's a lot of talk that New New Hampshire has a state law that says they can move in front of anybody and then they may try to move in front of Nevada. You have the the Democratic National Committee makes these decisions. It's it's not like there's a vote of of the people of Nevada or New Hampshire or Iowa, although Iowa seems willing to give up their caucus now that it's been such a disaster uh, the last couple of uh, presidential uh, cycles. But the Democratic National Committee will make this decision Joey, and it, it's worth pointing out that it, it, it is run by a guy from South Carolina. And South Carolina was widely seen as, as maybe one of the, if not the pivotal state in helping Joe Biden. And so James Clyburn, who was a longtime congressman from there, certainly has said that maybe South Carolina should be first. So I think the best we may be able to do is tied for first and get get it done on the same day as South Carolina. But I, it's just way too early to know if that's going to actually happen. Yeah.
1: And the last thing I want to ask you about before we wrap up is, is something that's actually not related to the legislature, but is related to politics. And it's that you have a, a book deal now with Shimon and Schuster w- about Harry Reid, the, the longtime Nevada state senator, uh, majority leader in the Senate. You want to just tell me a little bit about that before we wrap up?
3: Yeah, every day I wake up not believing that this is actually real, that this book I wanted to do for so long on maybe the most powerful and important figure in the history of Nevada. And I don't think that's melodrama. I think that case can be made uh, that I'm going to do the definitive biography and that I got him actually to cooperate and do a series of interviews. I've already done probably a dozen Zoom interviews with him, and, and and he is really telling some great stories. Every day I wake up and say, I can't believe this is real. This is so exciting. And I'm never going to have time to do this. Uh, right. Uh, you know, most people take book leaves from their jobs to write a book like this, as you know, Joanne, I, I can't uh, afford, and I don't mean financially to take a, 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 a leave from the independent, which is my little baby that I, that, that has grown. Um, thanks to you and others in the last four and a half years or so, and we're at a pivotal point in our history too. So it's very overwhelming. It's very daunting, but I really want to do it right. And, and, and so I, I'm really, I, I am, mostly excited about it but i'm also glad that i'm about to take about a month-long vacation so i can prepare for the year ahead because with everything going on at the indie and with this book and with an election cycle coming up i think i'm going to be tired again pretty quickly after i get back
1: yeah well enjoy your vacation john and as always thank you so much for talking with me it's, it's been a it's been an interesting co- last couple of months and i'm sure we'll see a lot more interesting stuff coming this summer but uh, get some rest thanks joey All right. We are here with Megan Messerly, our healthcare reporter. Megan, you haven't been on the podcast for a while. We we're doing uh, regular COVID updates and we, we are here to talk about, about COVID once again, but more, more on the vaccine side. So Megan, thank you so much for joining us.
4: Yeah, I'm happy to be back talking about COVID again.
1: Who doesn't love talking about COVID? At least it seems like
4: it's getting better, right? It is. It is. Things are definitely getting better.
1: That's 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 good news. I, it, it it feels that way. We're both vaccinated. We've kind of we've been going out a little bit. I was at the legislature. It's it's been interesting to experience this shift, I think. And I, I'm kind of curious too, just what you've seen in your day to day life. I, I know, like I went to a bar the other day and it was pretty much back to normal. People out getting drinks and a couple of people wearing masks. But for the most part, everyone seems to be pretty comfortable. And I, I think that's kind of a trend we've seen around the state is that people feel comfortable, especially now that the vaccines have been going up.
4: Yeah, it's it's really interesting. We uh, recently on June 1st, as of June 1st, all of the counties are 100% open. Some, you know, rural counties had previously already been at 100%, and that means no capacity restrictions, no more social distancing required. Mask rule is generally if you're are you're, you're vaccinated, you don't have to wear a mask. Uh, if you you know aren't vaccinated, you're still supposed to wear a mask. Obviously, rules can still vary by business, but yeah, I was I was shocked running errands this last weekend versus the weekend before that. And I would say two weekends ago, it was most people still wearing masks with some sporadic people not. And then just a week later, I'd say most people weren't wearing masks with just a few people who were still wearing. Them. So it's been interesting to see that rapid shift. And it's really interesting too because you have to think about these decisions are being made on a state by state basis. So I know talking to family and other states, they're just sort of starting this reopening process. Uh, so it's been really interesting to see uh, sort of social norms and h- how long it sort of takes people to get comfortable with maybe not maybe not wearing the mask if they, if they are vaccinated. I think so many of us are still so used to it. It's just sort of maybe hard to break, break away from that. But especially with being at 100%, I think we are seeing those changes sort of manifest in our, in our daily lives.
1: Yeah, yeah, I I know. I have a a wedding to go to this week, and I actually have to. It's in California, and I have to prove that I was vaccinated to uh, to get to the wedding. That's that's something that we we don't see here in the state of Nevada.
4: No, there's not been much, I, I think there's been a lot of resistance, in fact, to quote unquote, vaccine passports or any sort of vaccine verification. It's it, obviously different states, different rules, people are going to sort of approach that differently, Pri- private events, concerts, sporting venues, they can sort of have their own rules. But at this point, it's sort of up to those private businesses, those private entities to sort of establish those rules as we've seen governments sort of scale back their rules, whether that's the state government or local government. They're sort of, at least in Nevada, no longer the ones making these rules. It's it's up to the individual establishments to sort of choose, you know, how, how they want to approach things.
1: Yeah. So let's talk about let's talk about those vaccine numbers uh, a little bit broadly here. We, we saw a ton of vaccinations early on, of course. But what's the trend been now? It seems like it's been trending a little bit down, huh?
4: Yeah, it's, it's been really interesting to see. So obviously we had this just intense demand for the vaccine early on, which, which obviously we expected. And then I think state officials sort of always expected that we would hit this point where demand for the vaccine decreases. And then it's sort of this slow slog of trying to get folks vaccinated. But yeah, by and large, we have seen the number of new vaccinations being administered slow. Obviously, a couple of weeks ago, we had the 12 to 15 the adolescent age group eligible to get the Pfizer vaccine. So that group has continued to be vaccinated, but vaccinators are expecting that a lot of that there's going to be sort of a big back to school kind of push. You can imagine if families partially vaccinated, maybe they're traveling, they're not sure about the timing with the shots. You can kind of see why people might um, sort of put that decision off. Of course, vaccines are urging people. If you have adolescents, don't wait to get them vaccinated. There might be a big back to school rush. So they they sort of say now there's no time like the present, but in general, yes. When we look at the number of new first doses being initiated, there simply just aren't as many as there were many weeks ago. I mean it's it's really a fraction of, of what we were seeing at the height of the vaccination effort. Which again, not not unexpected, but it, it does mean that we see this sort of percentage of Nevadans vaccinated. It's really an Im- incrementally inching up now versus sort of the big jumps we were seeing early on.
1: Yeah, and, and one thing too that's been mentioned is they're they're trying to get to this 70% threshold, which is the threshold at which kind of herd immunity starts working, and and a, and a lot of other things. That's kind of the goal, right? And they want to do that by July 4th. It, it kind of doesn't look like we're going to get there,
4: at least here in Nevada. Yeah, it's 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 been interesting. So that's a target that's been set by the Biden administration that nationally 70% of adult Americans will be vaccinated. By the 4th of July, a lot of states have gotten there. They are uh, 70 plus. A lot of the the states, especially in in the the Northeast, we've even seen uh, neighboring California is now above that threshold. So is New Mexico. So states are hitting this goal. But if you think about Nevada, we are not traditionally necessarily the the best at at, at getting folks vaccinated. In the 2019-2020 flu season, we're actually the last in the nation for percentage of our population vaccinated against the flu. So if you look at the data and where we're at, we're, we're not at, at dead last in, in COVID vaccinations, which was good and vaccinators take it a promising sign. You also look at the percentage of adult Nevadans who've been vaccinated. So that 18 plus population, it's slowly, at least at the time we're recording, it's sort of inching up on maybe the 60%. But again, it's sort of we're seeing these minor, minor incremental gains. So it's probably going to take us a few days before we even maybe more than a few days till we get to that 60% threshold. So just looking at the way things are going, we're probably not seeing enough new vaccines being initiated every day. And we can't even, those numbers are just sort of for the whole population, not specifically looking at the 18 plus, which is what the 70% goal is referring to. But even just looking at that new population of folks who are initiating the vaccination process each day, it's it's probably unlikely at this point that we're going to hit that 70% threshold by the 4th of July. But I know vaccinators are looking at that number and saying, hey, this is still way more adult Nevadans vaccinated against COVID than we see for flu. So that is an encouraging sign. And yeah, also the fact that we're not last in the nation, we're usually somewhere in the the mid to mid to high 30s, somewhere in that 35 to maybe 40 range. In Nevada, I think we're so used to being last uh, in the country for a lot of things that obviously even sort of being among the bottom half of states, but not at the very bottom, it can be an encouraging sign.
1: Nevada, Nevada's number one in my heart. So, <laughs> yeah,
4: in all of our hearts, in all of exactly.
1: Our hearts. <laughs> and, and and one thing that we've seen in some states, I know, like Ohio had like this. Basically, it's basically a lottery program where you could win a million dollars. Are we going to have some sort of incentive program where if if you get the vaccination, you'll you'll be put into a lottery to to get a million dollars or win a new car or or something?
4: Yeah, there was some talk about this at the the last meeting of the the COVID nineteen mitigation and management task force, which is the state task force that met to talk about sort of reopening criteria and monitor the situation in counties. That body is no longer meeting, but at their last meeting in May, they did talk a little bit about this. And so it sounds like uh, the state does have uh, some sort of a program in the works. It sounded like from what was uh, shared at that meeting that it would be maybe more of like a, a raffle or, or giveaway of certain items, but state officials have not released the final details on that program. So I think we're still expecting to hear about some sort of incentive program from state officials, but no details have, have been released on that. So uh, to be determined is, is this the latest update on that.
1: Okay. All right. Well, Megan, thank you so much for giving us uh, the lowdown on what's going on with the vaccination efforts here in the state of Nevada. And uh, if you want to find out more about any of that, you can do so by reading our data page. Uh, Megan, thank you so much for joining us.
4: Yeah, happy to be here.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd
1: like to thank Howard Stutz, John Ralston, and Megan Messerly for being on the show this week.
0: Leave us a review wherever you listen. Subscribe to our newsletter, Soundcheck, which comes out on the first Friday of every month, and email us with questions, comments, concerns, bookbinding tips, Walkman alternatives, or whatever else you want to tell us about at joey at the or Jacob at the nvindie.com.
1: Reno Band People with Bodies wrote and performed our original theme song. If you want to hear more of their music, you can find them on Spotify or Bandcamp. There's additional music on today's episode from Lance Conrad and myself. Thank You for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato.
0: And I'm reporter and producer, Jacob Solis.
1: And we'll talk to you next week.
0: All right. I shall read this. Mm-hmm. But I've got a burp. Hold on. Oh, good. No, it went away.
1: Oh, good. Okay. <laughs>
3: Where to go? Where to go?
0: I don't know. <laughs> it's just, it's I guess it's as good as mine. <laughs> oh, no, no, no.